So here's the thing about kids. You say, well, what do you mean here's the thing about kids? Mike, are you an expert? Well, I might not be an expert, but I do have experience. Okay, so Corinne and I have uh, two daughters, Tori and Emma. We have four sons, Lucas, Gabe, Bedza, and Samuel. By the way, you can be praying for Bedza. He's heading out this Thursday to go to Australia for six months for YWAM. So you can be praying for him, yeah. We also have a son-in-law named Josh. I have pictorial proof of what I just said to you. There we are. There's the, there's the fam. Since that picture was taken, uh, we've added an addition to the family. Our grandson, Noah, is three months old. Got a picture of Noah also. Now, I know exactly what you're thinking when you look at that picture. You're thinking to yourself, he looks like a genius. And you'd be correct. Okay, next picture. Back to the first, please. Second. That's what I'm saying. You see it, right? So, there they are. Here's the thing about kids. Kids will keep you humble. Another way of saying that is kids will sometimes embarrass you a little bit. I remember when Emma was 18 months old, when Corinne would take her to the grocery store, put her in the cart, put her little legs through the openings, every time Corinne would stop and, and go over to a shelf to grab something, Emma would prop herself up, get her feet underneath her, and stand up. She's my daughter, so she was probably reaching for some Cinnamon Toast Crunch or something like that. But the, but the point is, it's dangerous at 18 months old, and she would be standing there, you know, all wobbly, looking like the, the, the queen of the world expression on her face. And Corinne would put her back down and say, Emma, that's dangerous. No, but Emma kept doing it over and over, over again. So Corinne came up with this idea. She tied Emma's shoelaces together so that she couldn't get her, you know, her feet underneath her. It's a genius idea. Emma did not think it was a genius idea. In fact, at 18 months old, she was quite frustrated by it. So much so that the first time Corinne did it, for 45 minutes in the grocery store, Emma repeatedly called out the word stuck, as in stuck, over and over and over again. Have you ever been embarrassed by your kids in a grocery store? It always is made better by the one person that you run into who has like a condescending frown on their face and they shake their head as if you're a terrible parent. Usually they're either pre-kids or post-kids at home in, the, in their stage and so they find it very easy to shake their head at you. Incidentally, as a bonus truth for you today, I have found that if you run those people over with your grocery cart, it often wipes the condescending frown off their face. So you can just stick that in the back of your head. Kids will keep you humble. I remember when Gabe was three years old, he got really into golf. Like more specifically, uh, Gabe got into mini golf. So much that we'd, we dug him like a golf hole in our front lawn and he would go out there and he would putt. But the thing is, is three-year-old Gabe, when he would play mini golf, when he would putt on the front lawn, he liked to do it au naturel. <laughs> Clothing optional mini golf, okay? So we would send him down with clothes on, but within 30 seconds, Gabe would be out there naked with nothing but a putter and putting around on, on the lawn and, and our neighbors would drive by and they would slow down and look and wave and Gabe would give him a quick wave and continue to line up. His putt. Kids will keep you humble. Remember when Lucas was 11 years old? Uh, he was playing spring seven-a-side soccer. Now, when Lucas was 11, he was a soccer phenom, and his team, especially in spring seven-a-side soccer, his team, whatever team he was on, would win. Lucas would just score as many goals as he had to to make sure his team won. And I remember this particular 11-year-old season. Uh, he had an awesome coach, nice guy, just super positive. And near the end, of the end of the season, they had won all their games. So he called the team together at the beginning of the game and he said, hey, look, this is what we're gonna do. Uh, since we've already like wrapped up first place, 
we're going to give all the kids a chance to play, especially the kids who haven't played as much. They're going to play more. Makes sense, right? So that's what they did. And uh, because of that, the other team uh, was winning the game. So just at the end of Lucas's one and only second half shift, the other team scored to make it four to two. There's about five minutes left in the game. Okay? So other team scores four to two. The coach, awesome guy, calls over, says, hey, Lucas, uh, your shift is over. It's time to come off. Lucas pretended like he didn't hear him. Took the, took, took the ball out of the goal, put it down in center circle, started the play, went down, scored 4-3. The coach says, nice guy, positive guy, right? Wow, that's great, Luke. Okay, anyways, your shift is over. Maybe you didn't hear me. The, it's time to come off. Again, Lucas pretends like he did not hear him, goes to the center circle, puts the ball down. You're wondering, what's the ref doing at this time? The ref was about 18 years old, and what the ref was doing specifically at that time was staring at his watch, waiting for the game to be over so he can get on with his plans. Okay, so Lucas puts the ball down, implores the other team to start the play. They did. Lucas steals it, goes down 4-4. Okay, so now the coach is saying, uh, wow, a tie, that's so great. Good job, Luke. Okay, your shift is over. And by this time, a large crowd had gathered around this particular field to watch the boy who wouldn't sub, okay? And so, you know, all the parents are looking around going, whose kid is that? And I'm doing the same thing. I'm like, whose kid is that? I can't believe it. Don't they teach sportsmanship in his house or something like that, you know? And uh, Lucas runs out, 4-4, ball, pretends he doesn't hear the coach again, puts the ball in, implores the other team. They play the ball, goes down, steals it, scores 5-4. Game over, they win. We're all looking, whose kid is that? Well, in the meantime, as I'm shrugging and saying, whose kid is that? The head of the league was one of the people that was gathered there to watch the boy who wouldn't sub. And he runs onto the field and he starts yelling at Lucas. His face is all purple and his veins are sticking out. And I'm like, oh. So I go over and I'm like, you probably can't yell at my 11-year-old like that. So go ahead and yell at me. So he, he, he did. And now everyone knew whose kid that actually was. <laughs> now, I tell you that story because it's funny. And also because I want to tell you something that you've never heard in church before. If you spent your whole life going to church, I don't think you've ever heard this particular message. And it's really important. You need to take a page out of 11-year-old Lucas Manis' book. You need to be more competitive. And maybe you're not, maybe you're here for the first time, walking into a church for the first time in a long time, and one of the reasons that you've stayed away as long as you have is because you have had this impression of Christians or people who go to church as armchair quarterbacks who sit back passively and critique everything that everyone else does. I want to apologize for that. I want to suggest to you that at this church, we want to get more competitive, not less. Now, I bring that up because we've been talking about a guy who lived about 3,100 years ago, a guy by the name of Samuel, okay? And we talked about the fact that when Samuel was four, maybe five years old, his parents dropped him off at the temple in Shiloh, and, and the head priest there, Eli, raised Samuel. He, he mentored Samuel, and Samuel worked for this priest named Eli. Well, Eli also had two of his own sons. A couple weeks ago, we, we read that Eli's sons were a bad lot, that they were scoundrels. So basically what that means is Eli's sons, what they did was they misrepresented God in order to manipulate people. They misrepresented God in order to manipulate people. What they did was they, 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 they pretended like God wanted people to do stuff, but they really did it for their power and their prestige and their pleasure and their superiority. At some point their dad Eli catches wind of this and we pick up a story in 1 Samuel chapter 2. 
Eli took them to task. What's going on here? Why are you doing these things? I hear story after story of your corrupt and evil carrying on. Oh my sons, this is not right. These are terrible reports I'm getting, stories spreading right and left among God's people. If you sin against another person, there's help, God's help. But if you sin against God, who's around to help? But they were far gone in disobedience and they refused to listen to a thing their father said. So God, who was fed up with them, decreed their death. But the boy Samuel, but the boy Samuel was very much alive, growing up blessed by God and popular with the people. I want to suggest to you today, and I hope to prove it, that the kind of competitiveness that I'm talking about, Samuel had it, Eli's sons did not. Let me explain it this way. I'll use the Edmonton Oilers, obviously. Okay, so I've cheered for the Edmonton Oilers my whole life. You say, well, that's really sad. I know, it has been for years and years and years. But there was a time when the Oilers were actually good. Like we won a bunch of, Stan- I notice I said we. we. We won a bunch of Stanley Cups. We, we had some really good players. And, and the best of our really good players was a guy by the name of Wayne Gretzky. All intelligent people still consider him the greatest hockey player who has ever lived. Not everybody, just all intelligent people. Okay, so Gretzky's in the league and, and, and he started out playing in the NHL when he was 18 years old. He won a bunch of scoring titles. And there's some critics who said, oh yeah, he wins scoring titles, but he gets way more assists than he does goals. As an aside, when we get competitive for greatness, critics are always gonna come out of the woodwork. And you know what critics do? They critique. They always find something to critique. And I wanna tell you right now, when you get competitive for greatness, I wanna tell you, critics will always be there. I would go as far as to say this. Do not misrepresent it. Do not, do not imagine that a, the presence of a critic says you're doing something wrong. I would suggest that sometimes critics prove to you that you were doing something right. So there's Gretzky. They say, oh, he can score assists, but he can't score a goal. So one season starts, and I guess he decided, um, I'm going to start to shoot more often. And he started scoring goals, like a lot of them. So much so that it looked to us on the playground, I was a little kid back then, and we would get together every day and we would say, man, Gretzky's scoring so many goals. He's gonna score 50 goals in 50 games. Because at that point, that was the standards of of greatness of goal scoring in the NHL, to score 50 goals in 50 games. Only two players had ever done it before. Guy by the name of Maurice the Rocket Richard scored 50 goals in exactly 50 games, and Mike Bosti scored 50 goals in exactly 50 games. So every day we get together and do you think Gretzky's gonna do it? Is he gonna get 50 and 50? Is he gonna get 50 and 50? And uh, after 37 games, Gretzky had 41 goals. Well, this should be okay, right? Like, all he needs is nine goals in the next 13 games. He should do it. Well, in game number 38, Gretzky scored four goals. Now he has 45 and 38. It's looking good. In game 39, Gretzky played against the Philadelphia Flyers, scored five goals, 50 goals in 39 games. I want to ask you a question. It's kind of important. Was Gretzky competitive? Yes. With people? No. If if he was competing against Maurice Richard and Mike Bossy, he would have scored 50 and 49. But he scored 50 and 39. He was competitive for greatness. It really interests me how in our culture today, and maybe especially in the church, we have this misconception, we have this negative uh, thinking towards competitive people. We look at them and we almost say, uh, (laughs) take it easy, chill out, relax, stand down. 
and maybe especially in the church. We, we might go as far as to say this. Look at, look at, look at. You're in church now. You know what I mean? So you can get competitive in sports if you want. You can be competitive in business if you want. You, you, you can be competitive at school if you want. But this is church. So take it easy. It's an odd way to think. Because on one hand, we, we want to judge competitive people. And yet, on the other hand, we're all drawn towards them. You want a competitive person on your team. If you, if you ever run into health problems, let me assure you of this. You want a competitive doctor. You do not want a doctor that's walked through med school saying this, I wonder what the least amount of work that I could do and still get a degree so that I could work on you one day. You don't want that person. You want a competitive, or you want a competitive financial advisor. You want a competitive person to coach your kids. You want a competitive person to teach your kids. If you're flying in an airplane, which is one of the main ways that you would fly, so if you're flying in a... In a thank you, Dave. If you're flying in an airplane and, and you run into some trouble, you want a competitive pilot. You don't want a guy who walked through aviation school saying, well, C's get degrees. You don't want that woman, you don't want that man flying your plane, you don't. A few minutes ago, the band came up, and every Sunday, I hear feedback from, from you, from us, saying, man, our band is awesome. I agree. They're competitive. They're really competitive for greatness. See, to me, when I, when I say competitive, what I mean is, is, is being, be, being determined to maximize your potential to fulfill your purpose. That's competitive. Maximize your potential to fulfill your purpose. And so every day when the band comes up here, listen, can I tell you something? I'm not overly interested in listening to a band that isn't competitive. Every single Sunday when they come up here, they're maximizing their potential. They've worked, they've prepared to be ready because they want to fulfill their purpose. They understand that the stakes are very high every week. That there's people walking into this church every Sunday for the first time. There's people walking into this church for the 4,000th time and they're in a rut and they need to break out of it. And so they understand the stakes. They understand their purpose. Number one is to bring us to a place where we can magnify God, that we can remember again that God is great and God is good and God is with us and God is for us. So we're more than willing to take that leap of faith. By the way, that's the Christian life. Leap of faith followed by leap of faith followed by leap of faith. They maximize their potential to fulfill their purpose. They bring us to a place of thanksgiving where we remember everything that God is, everything that God has done, everything that God will do. Because you know what? You can live your life one of two ways. You can look for something to complain about or you can look for something to be grateful about. We want to be people who are always looking to be grateful. They maximize their potential to fulfill their purpose. They know that they're here every single Sunday to create an environment where God can give each one of us that one next step, that one leap of faith. It just blows my mind, you know, that we're kind of, kind of at times in this place where we, we look at competitive people 
and maybe especially so in the church, and we say, oh, no, 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 competition is for sports. I saw someone with a Dak Prescott jersey walking in here. That, that's awesome, I love Dak Prescott. That, that's great, so, that, so it's about the Cowboys. Or, or it's about business. Or, 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 or it's, about, it, 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 it's about school, like trying to get that. No, the opposite is true. We need to be competitive for greatness. And maybe especially here. I love the way Irwin McManus put it. He said this, the truth is few of us see ambition as a virtue. We quietly think it's okay to be ambitious, but not too ambitious. Too much ambition will corrupt us. But we never think that way about love. We never think, be careful not to love too much. You need to hold on to a little bit of hate. We never think that about forgiveness. Be careful not to forgive too much. You need to hold on to a little bit of bitterness. We never think that about integrity. Be careful not to have too much integrity. You need to hold on to a little bit of corruption. There's this time Jesus was walking down the road with his disciples and his disciples all got into this big argument and the argument was basically uh, arguing over which one of them was the greatest. And Jesus stops and he looks at them and he says, just so you know, the first will be last and the last will be first. And then he goes on to explain and he says, whoever among you wants to be great must be a servant. And I'll tell you something, up until about six months ago, every time I read that story, you know what I thought to myself? I thought that Jesus was stopping and saying, hey, whoa, 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 time out, time out. Hey, wing nuts, stop worrying about being great. That shouldn't be an aspiration of yours, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't reprimand them for wanting to be great. He instructs them on how to be great. So important. See, in reality, what the disciples were doing as they walked down the road that day, um, they weren't talking about being great. They were talking about getting famous. You know what fame is? Fame is what you do for you. Fame is about maximizing your power so that you can increase your privilege. Fame is about what you do for you. Greatness is about what you do for others. Maximizing your potential to fulfill your purpose. Jesus said, you should want to be great. Here's how. Live your life on behalf of others. Maximize your potential to fulfill your purpose. Be great. 1 Corinthians 10 says, um, whatever you do, whatever you do, it, do it all for God's glory. It's amazing. Let me put it this way. Maybe you're smart. You know what I mean? Like maybe you're intelligent. That's awesome. That's so cool. That intelligence that you have, that's a gift from God. Now go be great. Maybe you're athletic. Sweet. I'm so, I can relate, man. I'm so athletic too. Now, I'm not actually, but, 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 let's, but let's say you are. I love it. I love it. That athleticism is a gift from God. Now use it and go be great. Let's say your EQ is off the charts. You're so good at relating to people. You're so good at connecting. You're so good at influencing others. That is so cool. That's a gift from God, right? So now go use it and be great. 
Maybe you're incredibly gifted at producing wealth. Awesome, love it. That's a gift from God. Now take that gift and go be great. You look at Eli's sons. They weren't about greatness, they were about fame. They were about what they could do for them. Man, they, they wanted to maximize their power to increase their pl- privilege and their pleasure and their comfort and their ease and their superiority. Samuel, on the other hand, the more you read about Samuel at that same stage, he was all about being great. He just served. He just served God, served people. That's what Jesus said it's all about, right? Love God and love people. Samuel was the one setting up the lights. Samuel was the one preparing the seating. Samuel was the one getting the music ready to go. Samuel was the one serving God and serving people, and, it's, and the Bible says that slowly he grew in the esteem of men and God. See, it blows my mind that in our culture, and maybe especially in the church, that we have this misconception, we have this negative view towards competitiveness. You should be competitive for greatness, for greatness. Maximize your potential. Fulfill your purpose. You understand what I mean? Listen, welcome to the world. Welcome to the world. Welcome to this planet. It's good you're here. It should not be the same without you. That's it. You're here for a purpose. Maximize your potential. Let's go. Welcome to the world. It's good you're here. It shouldn't be the same without you. Be great. Be great in your friendships. Man, I notice in our culture today, there's such, such a sense of superficiality. I'm so worried about me, I'm so worried about fame, that relationships often end up like this. It's the me that I think you want me to be, and it's a friendship with, with the you that you think I want you to be. No, no authenticity at all. Be great. Be real. Find some people in your life that you can be real me and real you, and that's it. And we can really call out each other's real potential and cheer each other on towards our real purpose. Be great in your friendships. Be great in your family. Start out today by saying kids will keep you humble. That's true, but you should never live your life humiliated. You can live your life humble, not humiliated. Let me tell you what I mean. Moms and dads, out of all the people in the world that God could have chosen to be a dad to those kids, to be a mom to those kids, he chose you. So go be great. Be great. Start here. Last week we talked about authentic appreciation and authentic apologies. Start there. Hey, mom and dad, how about some authentic appreciation? Spend some time with your kids and watch them like a hawk. Watch them real careful, real careful. You know why? Because you want to catch them doing something good and then thank them for it. Appreciate them for it. Cheer them on. Kids, maybe do the same thing for your parents. They'll faint, but when they wake up, they'll be stoked. (laughs) Be great in your family. You owe someone in your family an apology. What I mean by that is you have a problem with anyone in your family. Part of it is your fault, so apologize. Not, I'm sorry you feel that way, but look them in the eye and go, man, I'm so sorry. Be great. Be great at work. Be great at work. Be great at school. Be great in everything you do. Welcome to the world. It's good you're here. 
it shouldn't be the same without you. You say, I'm just a street sweeper. Sweep great. I'm just a lawyer. Lawyer great. I'm just a fry slinger at McDonald's. Sling great. I'm just a preacher. Preach great. I'm just a doctor. Doctor great. Whatever you do, be great. Maximize your potential. Fulfill your welcome to the planet. It's so good you're here. It shouldn't be the same without you. And you know what's true of us individually is also true of us collectively. I want to talk about us. I want to talk about us. I want to talk about this mission called Southside. A few months ago, I had a consultant call me. He's one of the guys that's helping us uh, plan this building that we're building. If you're new, we're building a building. You know, (laughs) For, for the first time in the history of our church, we're building a home for this church. Dave Poole told me I'm no longer to speculate, pub- no longer allowed to speculate publicly on when the church might open because I keep being overly optimistic. So I'm not telling you when it opens, but we're building one, okay? <clears throat> this guy calls me and he says, uh, he's, he's, he's playing hundreds of churches. He says to me, I, I just want to give you a warning. I just want to give you a heads up. He said, I've been a part of hundred, hundreds of church builds. And every single time, every single time, here's something that's going to happen, Mike, and you need to get prepared for it. I said, what's that? He said, uh, the church kind of stalls out as the building is being built. And, 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 and the church kind of looks at the building as a, an end in itself. And, and, and things just stall and momentum gets, uh, get, 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 gets broken. I said, have you ever been to Southside? Good guy. This is a good guy, by the way, awesome at planting churches. I said, have you ever been to Southside? He said, no. I said, have you ever met any Southsiders besides me? He said, no. I said, that won't happen to us. He's like, no, no, you don't get it. I'm warning you, it will happen. I'm like, no, it won't. You don't know us. I told him a shorter version of the story that I'm going to read for you today. There's a little museum on Nantucket Island in New England. It was devoted to a volunteer organization that was formed over 300 years ago. In those days, travel by sea was extremely dangerous. And given the storms of the Atlantic and the rocky coast of New England, many, many lives were lost really close to shore within a mile or less of the land. And a group of people who lived on that island, they couldn't stand to think about all these people going down so close to them. So they went into the life-saving business. They banded together to form what was originally called the Humane Society. We think about animals now with that name, but in those days it was about saving the lives of those lost at sea. So they built little huts that dotted the shore containing boats and rescue equipment. They were sometimes called huts of refuge. Huts of refuge. And people were posted in those huts all the time, and their job was just to keep watching the sea. And any time a ship went down, the word would go out, They would devote everything. They would risk themselves to save every life they could. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, somebody was watching, everybody was willing. They didn't do it for the money. They didn't do it for the recognition. They did it because they knew it was a part of their purpose. And to remind them how seriously they took this task and what was at stake, they adopted a motto. Listen to this for a motto. You have to go out but you don't have to come back. That's a catchy little recruiting slogan, don't you think? 
You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. You wouldn't think that that would entice a whole lot of people into joining, but it did. It's a fascinating thing to read accounts in that museum of people who risked everything, even their lives, to save other people they'd never met, faces they had never seen, names that they might not ever know. Over time, things changed, and after a while, what would come to be known as the U.S. Coast Guard started to take over the task. And for a little while, the Coast Guard and the Life-Saving Society, they worked side by side. Eventually, the idea that carried the day was, let the professionals do it. They are better trained. They get paid for it. Volunteers stopped manning the little huts. They stopped searching. They, <clears throat> they stopped searching the coastline for sinking ships. They stopped sending out teams to rescue people. And it's a funny thing, because they couldn't bring themselves to disband. And the life-saving society still exists today. It meets every once in a while in Boston or someplace in New England to have dinners. And they handle awards for things like community service. They enjoy each other's company, mostly. Usually they get along. They sponsor programs, they get together, they are just not in the life-saving business anymore. They don't scour the coastline anymore to see if anybody is going down. They don't know the thrill anymore of what it is to risk themselves to save a life that could perish. They don't speak these words to each other anymore. You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. They're just not in the life-saving business anymore. I told him that story and he said, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> I said, well, we're competitive. We're competitive for greatness. He said, I don't know what you mean. I said, let me help you. I said, there are still so many of us that call Southside Church our home, including me. We still remember what it is to be shipwrecked. We still remember what it is to be lost. We still remember what it is to be floundering. We still remember what it is to lose all hope. And we will never, ever, ever forget that Jesus saves. And we will never, ever stop being grateful for the men and women that God sent into our lives to bring us home. And a building for us, it's not the end. It's a means to an end. We will never forget that Jesus saves. We will never forget that he makes lost people found. He alters eternities. He revives dead marriages. He restores families. He, he, he gives the lonely love. He alters the course of family trees. Family trees that for generations have been hurting people, hurting people. Broken people, breaking people. Shattered people, shattering people. Jesus saves. And all of a sudden, everything changes. And love people, love people. And save people, save people. And change people, change people. We'll never forget that. We'll never forget that he loosens the bonds of bitterness. Breaks the chains of addiction. We'll never forget. We're not here for us. We're for the city. We gotta go out. We don't need to come back. Everything we got, every single day. That's it. We're not here to be famous. We're here to be great. We will 
maximize our potential, we will fulfill our purpose. We will never forget that Jesus saves. The lost are still being found. The blind still see. The deaf still hear. The lame still walk. Hope still rises and darkness still trembles. Oh, we're competitive for greatness. Oh, looking to be famous, but we are looking to be great. Maximizing our potential to fulfill our purpose every day. We're here for the city. We're here, we're here for the city. We gotta go out. We don't need to come back. Everything we got. I was reading a statistic the other day. It said for, for a church to usher in a revival in the city, for hope to rise and for darkness to tremble in a city, what, what that church would need is for 10% of the population of that city to attend that church. That's about 10,000. So let's go. Let hope rise. Let's go. You say, <laughs> Mike, you talking about numbers, that makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm talking about numbers and I always will. Listen to me. I don't know if you've heard this before or not, but if you have, hear it again for the first time. Listen, every number has a name, every name has a story, and every single story matters to God and matters to us because Jesus still saves. Welcome to the world, Southside Church. It's good you're here. Shouldn't be the same without you. So here's a question. Who are you bringing to church next week? Who are you bringing to church next week? Jesus loves you, right? He, he, he loves every single person, every single story represented in this city. He loves them too. And part of his plan to show his love to some of those people is he placed you in their proximity. So who are you bringing to church next week? You say, well, I don't even know what we're talking about at church next week. You know, we're talking about hope. We're going to talk about hope next week. You know what we're going to talk about two weeks from today? We're going to talk about hope. Three weeks from today, we're going to usher in a, a bit of a different thing. We're going to talk about hope again. We're going to talk about Jesus saves. We're going to talk about that sins can be forgiven. Regrets can be erased. That new life, eternal life can be ushered in. Today, right now. So who are you bringing to church next week? You say, well, if I ask someone to church, they might say no, and that's hard. I know you gotta go out. You just don't need to come back. Everything you got. Everything we got. We're not looking to be famous, but we are looking to be great. On the chairs today, they... Oh yeah, about inviting somebody. A few weeks ago, I said to the staff, I said, uh, sometimes second and third service are getting a little bit busy, a little bit full, and I don't know if for some people it would be difficult to invite somebody to church and you just feel like, ah, it's a bit busy. We're gonna fix that. We're gonna open up more seats. I'll tell you more about that next week. <laughs> We're not stalled out. Building isn't an end. We're here to be not famous, but great. Um, on your chairs, there's a little thing about serving. If you're here in visit number one today, if it's visit number one for you today, that form is not for you. Man, welcome here. I'm so, I'm so glad you're here. By the way, uh, it's cool because today was your perfect day to come because I think you've got a really good picture of who we are at Southside Church. 
But if you're here on visit number two or more, fill one out. We're here for the city. <laughs> we gotta go out, we don't need to come back, everything we got. There's all sorts of roles that make church happen every week, you know? Some of, them are, some of them are big roles, some of them are smaller roles, some of them are really visible, and some of them are almost invisible. It's funny how sometimes the least visible can be the most valuable. But I don't know if you notice, but sometimes when you drive in, you see people in the parking lot. You know what they're doing? You know what they're doing in the parking lot? They're being great. Or you walk in and someone shakes your hand as you walk in the door. You know what they're doing? They're being great. Southside Kids team right now, loving our kids. You know what they're doing? They're just being great. The music team, like Jason, who's playing keys behind me, so I sound profound. You know what he's doing? He's being great. The tech team is being great. Let's go. Let's go. We're here for this city. We gotta go out. We don't need to come back. Everything we've got. You know what fame is? Fame is about me doing something for ourselves. You know what greatness is? Doing something for other people. Why don't you stand up so we can pray? Dear Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you stepped into human history, that you lived, that you died, that you rose again for me, for us. I pray that we would live every day, every moment with a sense of gratitude. And I ask for every single person in here today, I pray that hope would rise in us, that hope would rise in us, that hope would rise in us, that hope would rise through us, and darkness would tremble. Change us, change us God, and use change us to change this city that we love so much, one life, one story at a time. I pray this in your name and everybody said, amen. Love you guys. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you at any of our three Sunday services held at Sardis Secondary School on Stevenson Road in Chilliwack, British Columbia. For more information, please visit southsidelife.com.